What was that? Let's hear it again. Here's a hint. If you don't know, you never needed one. You lucky stiff. Welcome to Resound, a brand new show from the Third Coast Festival on Chicago Public Radio. I'm Gwen Maxi. So what exactly is this new show, Resound? Well, it's a showcase of audio documentaries. Here's what we're going to do. Cull, comb, and curate audio work from all over the world, work you would never otherwise get to hear, and package it for you in a one-hour show on Sunday nights. Here's what you're going to do. Sit back and enjoy the fruits of our labor. Nice work if you can get it. Tonight we bring you three pieces. Fez, Morocco, A Journey in Sound. There are no Shriners there. Holy Soul, you never know who you're going to meet at a bar mitzvah. And Mind, Body, and Soul. When you love a book so much, you just want to eat it. Literally. Stay tuned. Oh, and what does any of this have to do with the sound at the top? Nothing. We just wanted to get your attention. We'll tell you all about it a little later in the show. So come, take a break, take a seat, take a listen. So let's reiterate. You're listening to a new show on Chicago Public Radio, curated by the Third Coast Festival. It's called Resound. Let me spell that out for you. That's R-E colon sound. Regarding sound. Reason, sound. I'm Gwen Maxi. Resound is a place where you can hear things you can't hear anywhere else. Audio works. Documentaries. Documentaries that broaden your idea of what a documentary even is. They're out there, but only a fraction of them make it to the Chicago market. Why? Uh, Because maybe they were produced in, say, Australia, or they're on the web, or on a little herd show in Oklahoma, or produced by a 15-year-old, and, you know, whoever takes them seriously. Well, we do so that you can. Tonight, we're starting with a piece by sound recordist Jim Metzner. And let me tell you, when Jim Metzner records something, it's almost better than being there yourself. Seriously. When you're in a place, you tend to take the sound around you for granted. Jim Metzner never does. You'll hear what I mean. This piece first aired in 1998 on The Savvy Traveler, a show now extinct. Here is Fez Morocco, A Journey in Sound, by Jim Metzner. A tape recorder is a pocket full of breadcrumbs. When you record sounds, wherever you go, you leave an invisible trail from moment to moment. And then one day, you listen to the tape, and you find your way back again. This trail leads to Morocco, the city of Fez, one of the oldest continuously inhabited cities in the world. Let's follow these sounds and see where they take us. Fez is really three cities. The first, a modern European-style metropolis, The second, Fez el-Jadid, or New Fez, dates from the 13th century. And Old Fez, Fez el-Bali, goes back to the 9th century. And that's where we are now. Picture an ancient walled city. And inside the walls is a maze of alleyways, too narrow for a car to get through. 
So the traffic inside Old Fez is mostly people and donkeys. Balak is the donkey driver's equivalent of a car horn, and it means out of the way. 225,000 people inhabit the old city of Fez in an area roughly four and a half square miles. For the folks who live here, it's one enormous extended family. For a child growing up here, the alleyways of the old city are one extended playground. Amidst the bustle of activity of the city, always in motion like a giant human hive, there are moments when the sounds themselves will slow you right down. In a tunnel passageway with children playing nearby and tourists and tradespeople walking past, an old man intones praises to Allah. Morocco is an Islamic country, and in Fez's Medina, that's another name for the old city, there are literally hundreds of mosques. Five times a day, you can hear the call to prayer throughout the city, but probably the best place to hear it is from a rooftop, where it's just you and the pigeons. Muslims are not allowed inside mosques, but it is possible to gain entrance to a Quranic school. Men who live and work in this part of the Medina come here to pray, but before they do, they remove their shoes and wash their feet, hands, and face at the fountain in the school's courtyard. As a flock of birds circles overhead, the imam begins his prayer facing towards Mecca, and a row of a dozen men standing shoulder to shoulder join him.
Outside the courtyard of the Quranic school, the life of the Medina hums right along, and it's easy to be drawn through the alleyways and tunnels from one sound to another. That's the girab who carries a goatskin full of water and dispenses it in a brass cup to anyone who requires a drink. Along with the bell, his signature sound, the garab wears a broad-rimmed hat fringed with tassels and a costume bedecked with tiny mirrors. And for a few dirham, the Moroccan currency, he'll let you take his picture. The passageways of the old city are lined with stores and stalls selling a mix of modern and more traditional goods. Foods of every description, but most especially dates and olives. Spices, clothing, hardware, dry goods, school supplies, electrical supplies, video games, and cassettes. There are boom boxes everywhere here, and they compete for a niche in the raucous soundscape. In the ecology of the marketplace, tourists are both predator and prey, taking photographs at every opportunity of a people who, for the most part, really don't want to have their picture taken. In turn, the busloads of touristas who make their rounds through the Medina are hit on by hawkers, stallkeepers, and would-be guides. The sounds of bargaining ripple through the Medina, and the merchants of Fez are master salesmen. This is old pieces. <laughs> bronze. Old. Mm. Old bronze. 50 dirhams. Uh, you, it's not the deal that is important. It is uh, your friendship for next time, perhaps. Mm -hmm. So, money is not all. 600 dirhams, you won't regret, and it's a, a nice piece. There are subtler sonic delights in the old city, somewhat off the beaten pathways, like the sound of grain being sifted before it's ground into flour. Or the noise made by a little hand motor used to twist the cotton thread for making jalabas, the traditional men's outer garment. Fez has a rich tradition of craftsmanship. Whole sections of the old city belong to artisans who work in brass, stone, textiles, wood, and leather. In the Place Safarine, the stone chiselers work nearby the men who hammer the designs on brass trays. And sometimes it seems as though the rhythm of one is picked up by another.
and then suddenly it's dusk and the trail of sound morsels expands and intersperses throughout the old city. There's magic in the air, and what better place to hear it than at the Babu Jaloud, the Blue Gate, the place where most people enter and leave the Medina. In the throngs of humanity that parade by, and in those at the cafes that sit and watch them, there's an air of expectancy, echoed by the birds who roost here, as if in the midst of all this apparent chaos, there's a last-minute chance to make some sense of it all. And for a fleeting moment, the music that is hidden in all sounds reappears. And once again, you hear it. in Morocco. I'm Jim Metzner. Fez, Morocco, A Journey in Sound by Jim Metzner. You may be wondering how Jim Metzner got such incredible sound on his trip through Fez. Well, first, he recorded over 20 hours of sound. Radio is nothing if not labor-intensive. He also recorded all the sound on a set of binaural mics, meaning that he wore something akin to headphones while walking the alleys of Fez, only instead of having earpieces on each side, he had microphones that pick up sound the way our ears do on opposite sides of our head. That, and he had something like, you know, 10 backup tape recorders and 20 extra mics. Okay, maybe a slight exaggeration. But listen, you don't get recordings like these with microcassettes and dictation machines. (laughs) 
You're listening to Resound, a brand new show on Chicago Public Radio, where we blend audio documentaries, sound design, music, and an occasional behind-the-scenes look at how it's all done. I'm Gwen Maxi. Coming up later in the show, a new way to digest a good book, Through the Intestines. But first, some great music. This is the band Evax, that's E-star V-A-X, from their album Parking Lot Music. Just a word here. Generally, when we play a piece of music, we're going to play a big chunk of it. Once in a while, maybe even, dare I say it, the whole thing. So sit back, relax, and enjoy. And don't worry, no one's asleep in the control room. Resound. We'll be back in a minute.
I'm Gwen Maxi, and you're listening to Resound from the Third Coast Festival on Chicago Public Radio. It's not often we get to meet people in the public eye, people we admire, people to whom we feel somehow connected, even though we really have no chance of actually connecting with them. Writer and producer Matt Power defied those odds when, while at his cousin's bar mitzvah of all places, he met and began a lifelong relationship with one of this country's most revered, well-loved, and controversial literary figures. I was 15 when I first met Allen Ginsberg. It was at my cousin Isaac's bar mitzvah. He had been friends with my aunt Elsa since the 50s. She worked at Grove Press in New York and arranged poetry readings. Everyone in my family had this sort of hushed reverence around him, and I knew that he was someone important, but I had never read any of his poems before. I didn't know anything about him, although I kind of thought of myself as a poet. I remember he put on a yarmulke, which I thought was a really interesting gesture for someone who spent the last 30 years of their lives as a devout Buddhist. At the reception afterward, we were introduced and we sat down together. It was in a Middle Eastern place. And we were eating stuffed grape leaves and and talking. And my parents were right in the middle of this pretty ugly divorce at the time. So I remember telling him, uh, asking him what he thought I should do about the situation with my parents. And he just looked at me and said, you look lovable. You should seek out people to love. Not long after, he asked me if I wanted to take a walk with him. I was 15 years old at the time. I didn't think anything was particularly strange about it, but years later, when I mentioned it to him again, he he asked me if I thought he had been hitting on me that night. Four years after that first time I met him, uh, my aunt, who lives in Cambridge, gave me a call and said that Alan was coming into town. He was doing a book tour in Boston. So I, I drove down, and I spent the whole afternoon at her house pacing around waiting for him to get there. And I wanted to make some kind of a good impression. There's this line from Patterson, William Carlos Williams, where he includes two letters written to him by Ginsburg when Ginsburg was around my age at the time. I know you will be pleased, he wrote, to realize that at least one actual citizen of your community has inherited your experience in his struggle to love and to know his own world city. I wanted to fit into Ginsburg's work in that way, be part of the continuum of American poetry and to sort of assume for my own friends and myself whatever place that was. He arrived at the door, he has a cloth bag full of poetry over one shoulder, and he's holding his harmonium, uh, which later I would see at a Sotheby's auction get auctioned off for $15,000. And I'd gotten much taller than him since the last time I had seen him. He seemed much slighter, but there was this this real deep, rich quality to his voice that was uh, much bigger than his physical persona, you know. 
He had a tight itinerary while we were in Boston, so we went right away over the Charles to a recording studio to do a spoken word album. Was it Pope in one of his many clever lines? At the recording studio, I sat for eight hours while Ginsberg, who was in a soundproof booth, read all 242 choruses of Mexico City Blues, this book that Kerouac had written while living in a garret in Mexico City 40 years before. For I will write in my will... I regret that I was not able to love money more. This is a man who was at the time 69 years old reading poetry for eight hours straight. And at the end, there were these, these great uh, like mournful choruses about Charlie Parker dying. 239th chorus. Charlie Parker looked like Buddha. Charlie Parker who recently died laughing at a juggler on the TV after weeks of strain and sickness, was called the perfect musician. And his expression and on Ginsburg his face was, was crying small. inside the sound booth, and you could hear him in between the takes just Anyhow, softly crying no to himself. Charlie Parker, forgive me. Forgive me for not answering your eyes, for not having made an indication of that which you can devise. Charlie Parker, pray for me. Pray for me and everybody in the nirvanas of your brain where you hide indulgent and huge. No By 2 a.m. we finished the recording session and we went back over to Cambridge. My aunt went to bed and Ginsburg and I stayed up sitting around the kitchen table. I remember asking him how he could read poetry for so long, and he said, you just have to breathe properly and, and go with each line. And then he said, I could read you some more if you like. We walked upstairs to the top floor of the house, and he was tired, but he grabbed a stack of poetry books off of the shelf. I sat on the floor with this nervous lump in my throat. I almost knew what was going to happen, but I couldn't tell who was seducing who just listening to the poetry. You know, seduction is always this kind of a dance. I mean, I remember him telling me later that he was surprised by the whole thing himself. But it, you couldn't be a, a teenage kid at that time and read his poems and not know that that's what he wanted from you, you know. We talked about poetry, and I asked him what he thought I should write about. And he said, you should write about your love for your friends. It was almost four in the morning, but I was wide awake. He offered to show me how to meditate. We sat for a few minutes while he, he lectures me. He had this, this kind of gently exasperated tone that he would get a lot. You know, keep your spine straight and let everything hang down from your head and breathe and don't close your eyes. And was ordering me around while I was trying to meditate. And of course, I'm sitting there. Uh, I wonder if I'm meditating now. Maybe now I'm meditating. And at the same time, he was holding me, and I was, I was afraid to look him in the eyes, you know. So he shut out the light and asked me if I wanted to lie down next to him. And there was this incredible nervous feeling. I didn't know exactly what I wanted out of this encounter, but I knew somehow it was, it was meant to happen, like uh, this connection with all these, these ghosts of my imagination, everything I had ever thought poetry was supposed to be about. <laughs> ¶¶ 
Something in the moment made me at least want to pretend that I was fearless. So I, I laid down in the bed with my shoes on. My heart was racing. I felt, I, I don't know, like I was being married or something. I was afraid but unbearably curious at the same time. Ginsburg got up and he went over to the sink and he started washing his socks, which is something I've never seen anyone do before. And uh, it seemed strange for me, for someone who would read poems in front of a, a rapt audience of a thousand people, to be standing there at four in the morning washing his socks out in the sink. He came back and said, do you mind if I take my clothes off? I said I didn't mind. He sat cross-legged next to me in the bed, naked, looking kind of like a, an Indian guru in the, in the lamplight from the street. I remember that I reached up and undid the buckle on my overalls. Years later, he said to me he thought that that was audacious of me. The funny thing about kissing a man 50 years older than you is how normal it feels. He had, uh, he was smaller than I was, and had this sort of soft, hairless body. It felt like a 17-year-old's. He was infused with this electric energy that I'd, I had never felt before. So I'm lying there and I'm trying to make sense of the whole situation, and, and Ginsburg says, Socrates said that the best teaching is done in bed. And I envisioned it as sort of this, this ancient exchange between youth and, and old age. Yeah. Ginsburg kind of offset the romance of that notion by following up with, I'm a vampire sucking your youthful energy. He really didn't seem like a vampire after all. Um, after the initial shock of the whole experience, um, my heart slowed down and I felt more or less at ease. And in a way, initiated into some rite, some sort of tradition. It was sunrise almost, and the birds were just starting to sing, and uh, I was getting ready to go back to my room downstairs. And I remember asking him kind of nervously, oh, you won't tell anyone? And he just looks at me and laughs and said, I'm not a fink. So in the morning, we met at the breakfast table, and we were both exhausted and never said a word about it. And it was like that for the whole week while he was in Boston. I would drive him around the city to book signings, interviews, I was really happy to be there. He was a poetry rock star, way better than a regular rock star. I tried to play it cool, but I would still swell with pride when he, he took my arm walking out of a reading. And every night we would return to Cambridge and return to the upstairs room. And there was nothing strange about it to me, but I still didn't want anyone in my family to know. I felt like it was too strange and bright of a secret to share with them. When the book tour in Boston ended, Ginsburg went on to Chicago, and I went back home to Vermont. So time passed. I went on with my life at college, and I saw Alan whenever our paths happened to cross. We became friends in, in a platonic way, and it's, it's those memories, really, that, that I think of more when I think about Alan now. I remember him asking me, uh, have you ever heard of Beck? He was totally excited about Beck and had gone to several of his concerts. I was in college at the time, and he knew more about Beck than I did. The last time I spent with him was a week in the winter of 1997, in January. He came to Elsa's house to see his cardiologist. It was cold, snowy, and he, he could barely shuffle down the street. 
I remember we went shopping for Tibetan rugs for his loft, and it took a half hour to walk the three blocks down to the store. He wore this heart monitoring machine and a bag on his shoulder, and it recorded every beat over a 24-hour period on, a, on this roll. I transcribed poems for him that week, uh, typing them out of his journal onto a computer, and I remember showing him a short story I had written, and he told me to drop all the sentimental bullshit and tell the story. Alan was still at Elsa's when I had to leave to go to an internship in Austria. I remember kissing him goodbye on the lips, and he stood in the doorway as my airport taxi pulled away. Three months later, I got an email from my aunt saying that Alan had been diagnosed with terminal liver cancer and that he only had six months to live. There's an old Japanese folktale that says if you fold a thousand paper cranes for someone, that they'll be granted a long and healthy life. So I started folding. And four days and 600 cranes later, I got another email from Elsa, which said, uh, <laughs> Akeb us in Asina, which didn't, of course, make any sense. But I looked at the keyboard and translated it to, Alan is in a coma. She was crying so hard when she wrote it that she couldn't see what she was typing. And the next day he died. And I remember going out into the woods and sobbing. Almost as much for myself as for him because I was moving to New York that summer and I had this vision of you know spending time with him, walking around with him, going shopping for him. And knowing him for years, having him be my tour guide of New York City. And suddenly he was gone. During that last visit together in Cambridge, I sat for hours at the table and made little origami animals for Alan. We watched The Simpsons. There was none of the flaring seduction of our earlier encounters. I've wondered since then if I should have gone to him in those nights, if I had some sort of youthful energy that could have brought back some of his strength. But I didn't. It seemed to me then that the, the last sort of reserves of his old self had concentrated in his voice. And that was still as vibrant as it had always been, even though his body was incredibly frail. There was a time when it, it felt like he was mine, but of course, he was always everybody's. Alan belongs to everybody who, who sees, the way he put it, uh, the dearness of the vanishing moment. It reminds me of something that he wrote when Kerouac died 30 years ago about the role of poetry. And what's the work? Ease the pain of living.
Lonely Soul by Matt Power. This piece originally appeared in the magazine Hebe and was then produced by Emily Botine, Dean Olsher, and Matt Power for PRI's The Next Big Thing from WNYC in New York. The Next Big Thing, by the way, is heard on Chicago Public Radio Saturday afternoons at 2. Coming up, books for eating, books for listening, books for everything but reading. First, though, let's listen to a little bit of E-Rock from their album, Conscious. Gwen Maxi, and you're listening to Resound from the Third Coast Festival on Chicago Public Radio. When you think of opening a new book, you may relish the sound of the spine cracking for the first time, the smell of the brand new paper, the feel of the pages as they turn one by one. Producer Gregory Whitehead, he imagines someone eating it. This piece we're about to play for you, Mind, Body, and Soul, first aired on the BBC in 1999. And if, while you're listening, you find it hard to sort fact from fiction, Gregory Whitehead will have you exactly where he wants you. Mind, Body, and Soul by Gregory Whitehead. Mind, Body, and Soul. That's quite an ambitious title. Well, everybody I talked to before I started this told me I needed a one-liner to describe 
the performance and mind, body, and soul just, just fits so good. Why is, why is that? Okay, uh, the performance is to eat and digest these three books. I got one copy of the Oxford Universal Dictionary of the English Language, one copy of Gray's Anatomy, and there's one copy of the King James version of the Bible. Mm-hmm. So that's one for the mind, one for the body, and one for the soul. So it's eating and digesting. That's right. Whole book. Except the covers. I don't I don't have to eat the covers. That's quite a, a lot of pages. It's 3,000 double-sided pages and change. And over what period of time are you doing this? 100 days is the target. And so far, after two months, I'm pretty much on track. Maybe a dozen or so pages behind where I should be, but... Uh, always, uh, from the beginning, I knew I would have to close with a sprint. So that's roughly, what, 30 pages a day? Uh, well, yeah, maybe, you know, it's a little more. On first impression, that doesn't strike me as as an overwhelming quantity. The first couple of weeks, it was a piece of cake. I mean, I was just flying through these books, but when you have to reach a quota, I mean, you know you have a certain number of pages every day and at some point the whole digestive tract you know from your mouth just all the way down it's just an open revolt you know and just the sight of a of a page can just make you go you know start to gag i mean look at these look at the size of these dictionary pages they are huge So the, the obvious question is, why are you doing this? Well, I, I get that question a lot. Uh, some of it, I guess, just has to do with endurance and discipline. Very, it's, it's like climbing a mountain, but you know, I, have, I have a really, really bad phobia about heights, so uh, I, I, this, I couldn't do that. And I don't know, there's the whole immortality thing. The whole immortality thing? You know, becoming one with the word. These three books are going to be around forever. They are going to be around. I mean, they've been around a a long time already, you know. So I make them part of myself. I I put them into my body, and it's just, it's like I can plug in to immortality. Hmm. A number of years ago, I interviewed an individual who was memorizing the Iliad in ancient Greek, and he used almost the same words. Really? Well, Greek is cool, but my memory is, it's like, forget about it. But then there's, then there's my girlfriend, who, and she just thinks that I'm doing this so I can get on Japanese television. Japanese? Why Japanese? They are really into this. I, I don't know exactly why. 
they eat all kinds of strange stuff over there because I've been there a couple of times doing this. And but I don't know. Anyway, I, but I've been getting press, Umango press in Japan. I notice you have three very different types of edition. Yeah, the Bible here on my left, it's a pocket version, and that means more pages, but they're smaller, so I think of them as my hors d'oeuvres. And the Gray's Anatomy in the middle is a standard paperback that you can get in any, you know, you can get. I got this one on, on Remainder, and it's cheap paper, goes down nice and easy. But the dictionary on my right, it's like library quality hardback. It is, it's, I'm, it's the main course, and I can tell you it is one very seriously chunky piece of buffalo meat. How do you relate uh, your uh, piece to the to the history of performance art? I don't know a whole lot about it. Somebody sent me a book that had some trippy pictures of artists eating all kinds of stuff. I think it was in Vienna during the 60s or something. But the book's like in German. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, then how does the piece uh, fit into the corpus of, of your own uh, artistic work? I, I haven't, you know, before this, I haven't done performance art. I, you know, a year ago, I was training to be a chef. I was in the Culinary Institute of America. I, I just always had this dream to do one thing, you know, the one thing that nobody, nobody else, no other body, something I could do with my own body that had never been done my full, before. So, you know, my attitude was... was just let's do it. And my girlfriend said, it's a, you know, it's a performance. It's performance art. It's, it sounds to me like a pretty full-time job. Oh, it's solid full-time. I mean, if you're going to eat these three books in 100 days, I can tell you, you are not going to be doing anything else. <laughs> so how do you finance it? Selling the covers. The covers? Yeah, I only have to eat, like, the body of the text. I don't have to eat the covers. So my girlfriend knew a collector who bought the covers sort of in advance. This is somebody who collects all kinds of weird stuff in art world, you know, very serious business. And in addition to that, then for cash flow, it's the gallery shows. The gallery shows? I get paid a fixed fee to set up my table for the day in a gallery and just chew book you know uh, it's what i'd be doing anyway and i'm just in a gallery so far it's been new york berlin paris uh, stuttgart osaka tokyo san francisco uh, cleveland philly a bunch of places some some colleges too anywhere in england not yet London would be cool. Oxford would be even more cool. I mean, you know, with the dictionary and stuff, that would, that would be really...
So, uh, how have the reviews been when you've done it in galleries? Uh, they've been, it's been total riot. I, it's some, one of my friends says I got to save all the art magazine clippings and then as a sequel I could just eat them, but there are, I don't understand some of it. I mean, one dude calls me, quote, a brilliant, almost hallucinatory embodiment of the corporeal aesthetic, translucently metaphysical, inflamed by the acid juices of neo-Deleusian thought. I still haven't found anybody who can tell me what neo-Deleusian means. I'm lost on that one. Uh, But has anyone objected that eating the Bible is, is somehow sacrilegious? I've gotten some negative feedback on that, and the gallery in Cleveland was picketed by a bunch of Mormons, but that's not how I see it at all, at all. I mean, it's the word of God. It's in my body. I'm, I am taking it into my body. And, I mean, there's all that stuff about the body being the temple of the soul, and I, I take that as word, mega big time, I'm mega. Do you ever worry about uh, toxins in the temple? Uh, from the from the ink? Not, not really. And the Bible I'm eating uses soy ink. I'm not sure about the others, but so far I haven't felt any any side effects or anything. I mean, I drink maybe five to seven big bottles of water every day, and that that just flushes everything out. Can you uh, describe your actual eating process? Sure. It's about time for a little snack anyway. Let's see here in the Oxford Universal. I am up to page 1,335. It goes from nun, N-O-N-E, to noose, N-O-O-S-E. It's got some words like nun, non-ego, non-essential, non-such, non-intercourse, non-natural, non-e-nani, non-performance, non-plus, non-sense, non-sense, non-sensical, non-sequitur, noodle, nook. It's one I've never seen before. Noology, the science of the understanding. It's from Greek. So I just tear it out and then tear the page lengthwise into more manageable pieces. I roll them up, you know, into almost like uh, a chaw of tobacco and then just start to chew. The key is water, lots of water, because the paper's constantly mopping out your mouth. I'm curious, how do you feel at night uh, lying in bed after after a full day of uh, performing this work? I feel good. I mean, sometimes I feel a little clotted or heavy, 
but then I just try to focus in on what I'm doing and the words that I've been that I've seen and been eating during the day because I usually take a couple of minutes to scan the pages before I put them in my mouth and every night all these words just kind of float up out of nowhere and it's a beautiful thing tonight it's going to be words like you know nani nani and and noology it's a beautiful thing I'm not sure how to ask the uh, the next obvious question. You mean the next morning? Right. Well, it's 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 pretty much what you'd expect. <laughs> so, uh, do you have any plans for the next project? Uh-uh, none. Zero. But last week I got a call from a publisher who wants me to write a book about the whole thing and and that had to made me made me laugh like all the words that I've been digesting were going to jump back onto the page and get in somebody else's face mind body and soul mind body and soul mind body and soul by Gregory Whitehead a hint about the artistry of Gregory Whitehead he calls his studio the laboratory for innovative and acoustical research its acronym, LIAR. You gotta love that. If you're just joining us, I'm Gwen Maxi, and this is a new program showcasing all kinds of documentaries from around the world. It's from the Third Coast Festival, and it's called Resound. And now, a confession. The sound we just played for you, we did it just to get your attention. No other reason. That's why we played it at the top of the show, too. It's a mystery sound of sorts. Of course, it's no mystery to anyone who had braces, got them tightened, couldn't eat, found two-week-old bologna nestled in the metal, cut the inside of her cheeks to shreds, imagined no one would ever kiss her, finally, finally, finally got them off. Oh, my God, did they smell, only to discover that they still had to wear this, the retainer. Unlike braces, which allowed you to shoot rubber bands at innocent passers-by, the retainer came with nothing whatsoever in the field of entertainment. So the only fun-slash-gross thing you could do was to see if you could flip it around 360 degrees in your mouth without handling it. Which, of course, I could. A minute ago, we heard someone eating their way through the great books. Now, let's listen to them. The Books, that is. A band that brings random samples into their music to tell stories. This is from their album, The Lemon of Pink. You've been listening to Resound, where sound and story make beautiful music together.
something is happening that is not happening. Sex. <laughs> Resound is a production of Chicago Public Radio and the Third Coast International Audio Festival. The program is produced by myself, Gwen Maxi, and Katie Dunn, and curated by Johanna Zorn and Julie Shapiro of the Third Coast Festival. You can hear today's program at chicagopublicradio.org. While you're at it, you can also hear dozens of outstanding documentaries from around the world at thirdcoastfestival.org. Generous support for the Third Coast Festival is provided by the Richard H. Driehaus Foundation, the Sarah Lee Foundation, the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, and the National Endowment for the Arts. Music for Resound is provided by Reckless Records in Chicago. If you want to contact us, we'd love to hear from you. Feel free to lavish praise, chew us out. Tell us about something you've heard that you want us to listen to by emailing us at resound at chicagopublicradio.org, R-E-S-O-U-N-D at chicagopublicradio.org. Resound returns next Sunday at 5 p.m. with more radio that you can't hear anywhere else unless you live everywhere else. Good night. Take time, take time, take time, take time.